the October 14th, 2022 Safe Passage for Children Conference on Family Violence produced a wealth of information and insights from our four presenters. Andrew Campbell opened the plenary session with a comprehensive overview of the relationships among animal abuse, child maltreatment, and domestic violence. Following that, there were four breakout sessions that explored these individual topics in more depth. So I wanted today to try to invite you to go to our website and view the opening session and the two breakout sessions that were recorded and to also view the PowerPoint slides by two of our other presenters and to highlight some of the major themes from this conference. One of these themes was the positive role that pets can play in situations of family violence. Second was the need to sensitize and train social workers, particularly in child protection, on the role that pets play in family dynamics. And third was the magnitude of the overlap between domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. And finally, there were ways that abusers use to control their victims. Three of the four breakout session leaders talked about how animals can help children get through the experience of family violence. Our keynote speaker, Andrew Campbell, in particular talked about this area because of his personal experience as a child. And he has recently published a book called Not Without My Pet, which credits his dog for literally saving his life. Charles Hempeck from Anna Marie's Alliance in St. Cloud talked about how they renovated their domestic shelter in part to make it possible for victims to bring pets to the shelter. Phil Arkow from the National Link Coalition covered several topics. And one was the fact that animals can be a unique source of comfort, literally someone for children to talk to and confide in when no one else in their chaotic home situation is available to them. He also pointed out that in Minnesota, there are more dogs and cats than there are children, with there being about 1 million children and 2 million dogs and cats. And he pointed out that between two-thirds and three-quarters of households in the state have pets. So that gives us an idea of the magnitude of the uh, availability of pets as potential supports for children. Phil and other speakers recommended that social workers be trained to observe pets when they enter a home because there are typical ways that pets present themselves if, for example, they are in fear or if they are threatening. For example, pets who are fearful display submissive behavior such as slinking, averting their gaze, and hunkering down. While pets that have been abused and are in a fighting mode will have their ears perked up, a raised and stiff tail, and perhaps hackles showing on the backside. So these are things that social workers should be alert to when they enter a household. In addition, Arco recommended that children be trained to ask questions about pets. He quoted someone named Kirby Wickoff saying that he often hears about what is going on in a family from asking about pets more so than he does from any diagnostic assessment. And often children are willing to open up about the abuse of their pets and tell what's going on well before they're willing to talk about their own abuse. So that gives workers an opening to understand what's really going on in the household. Also asking children about their pets can build openness and trust, and it can lower the barriers that a worker faces in establishing trust with children. I haven't heard that this kind of training is included in social work courses or other training in Minnesota, but after this conference, I intend to find out. 
And this is especially important because animal abuse is an indicator of child maltreatment as well. One study showed that in 60% of maltreatment cases overall, and in 80% of cases involving physical abuse, animals were also being abused or neglected. And this abuse was conducted, interestingly, two-thirds by the father and one-third by children. And there was quite a bit of discussion indicating that when children observe animal abuse, they are more likely to do it themselves, both as children and later as adults. In situations of child maltreatment also, there are 11 times more bites by the household pets, which is a risk factor for first responders overall. And interestingly, people who abuse their animals do tend to use veterinarians at a similar rate than the general population. So this creates opportunities for vets to identify child and domestic abuse, likely before these situations come to light in other ways. So there's an opportunity for cross-training vets and making the mandated reporters as well. In another study, 68% of domestic violence victims revealed that animal abuse also occurred in their household. And these victims indicated that 75% of the time when it did occur, it was done to intimidate them and the children. In his breakout session, Victor Vieth from the Zero Abuse Project explored the use of similar controlling behavior by abusers in faith communities. And his talk reflected many of the same types of situations as occur in domestic violence. Importantly for domestic violence victims, in a national survey of 2,500 callers, 50% of the callers said they would not leave their abuser if they were not able to take their pets with them. And then virtually all of the responders said that leaving the pets was an important factor in deciding whether to get out of the abusive situation. Perhaps most tellingly, both Andrew Campbell and Phil Arkow reported on studies that show women will, on average, wait until there have been 10 incidents of physical abuse before they will take action on domestic violence. So that might include, for example, being beaten, given a black eye, or pushed down the stairs. That number, though, increases to 50 times on average if there are pets. So since this is often, often also means that children are being abused during this whole time, it has consequences for the severity and the duration of child maltreatment. And in addition, even if children are not directly abused themselves, the trauma of seeing their parent or potentially their pets harmed or killed has a lasting impact on children that is often just underappreciated. Despite all this, the willingness of domestic violence shelters to accept pets is still limited, although Charles Hempick from Anna Marie's Alliance in St. Cloud, Minnesota, did an entire breakout session in which he talked about the fact that they renovated their domestic violence shelter in large part so victims could bring their pets when they leave their abuser. Overall, an estimated 600 shelters nationwide offer this kind of resource source, or they have foster care options available. And this includes five shelters in Minnesota that, takes, that take pets. And they are in addition to Anna Marie's Alliance in St. Cloud. They are located in Aiken, Brainerd, Duluth, and Rochester. The use of pets to control domestic violence victims and children was a major topic. Abusers may, open quotes, disappear, close quotes, their partners and their children's pets as punishment and intimidation. And think about what kind of impact that would have on a child with a beloved dog or cat. 
or they will kill or harm the pet in front of the child, which is even worse. And one example that Phil Arco gave was a, was a father pulling out the toenails of a pet as punishment for the child. As mentioned in one of our recent blogs, abusers often control children by saying that if they reveal the physical or sexual abuse that they are experiencing to others, the abuser will kill their pet. In one part of his presentation, Campbell pointed out that adding the factor of animal abuse increases the likelihood of other types of domestic violence. He illustrated this by taking an overall statistic and comparing it with that same statistic that has the additional variable of animal abuse. As an example, the chances of rape in a domestic violence situation are 8% overall, but that increases to 26% if there is a history of animal of violence. Similarly, if there's a history of animal abuse, the potential for strangulation increases from 47% to 76% in domestic violence situations. And then similar increases, he pointed out, occur regarding the risk for first responders, or the use of a weapon on the domestic partner and other variables. One of the persistent difficulties we all face is helping professionals in these related fields make the connection between their specialty and other forms of family violence. A Milwaukee public relations campaign showed an animal being abused and then added a photo to it of either a woman or a child and then said, quote, she's next, unquote. And you can see examples of this public relations campaign on their Facebook page. It's just called spotabuse.org. They don't have a website. And regarding the difficulty of making these connections, our overall objective for this conference was just to start conversations among people in various areas of family violence so they can help one another identify victims of abuse sooner and more effectively. Let's recognize that it's always difficult for professionals to break out of their particular silos and to make connections with people in related fields. And in my experience, this isn't because they are lazy or they lack imagination. It's because each of our individual disciplines are really worlds unto themselves. Among other demands, they have their own body of knowledge that practitioners have to master, their own legislative mandates, legal requirements, statistical and reporting requirements, and so on. However, if people could overcome these barriers and start making connections between these disciplines, they would find their own work easier in the long run, and they would be more effective. For example, a simple protocol to cross-report between animal regulatory and child protection agencies could, on average, according to Campbell, identify serious maltreatment up to a year earlier. And if child protection and domestic violence workers alerted animal regulatory agencies to animal abuse, they would be able to rescue and protect animals sooner. If protocols could be developed that protected the safety of domestic violence victims, then the ability of other professionals to alert domestic violence programs about child and adult victims in a household would improve their ability to respond appropriately in a timely way. And then generally, over time, family violence would be addressed sooner so that professionals in all of these areas would have fewer situations in which they put themselves at risk by entering a household. As in many situations, these possible solutions are, you know, easy to say and hard to do. But the point of this family violence conference was to get these conversations started so that eventually we may make these important connections among these related fields of advocacy. Thank you.
Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.